G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Life, Culture and Current Events from a Biblical Perspective, 2020 on Vision. We are going to be unpacking and discussing what's happening in our nation, a nation that has been described, and you've only got to look at the headlines to appreciate that we are in the grip of a drugs epidemic, an ice epidemic especially. So whether it is footballers in the grip of drug scandals or grandparents looking after grandchildren because their kids are drug affected or whether it's these new and dangerous and sometimes synthetic drugs that are available or whether it's just plain old issues issues to do with an out-of-control alcohol culture. Well, you can join in our conversation today. You're invited to do so. You might have your own thoughts, your own insights. You may have a question to ask. It may be that your own family is in the grip of this. You don't know where to go next. Well, our talkback line is open on 1-800-316-316 to chat through some of these issues. Uh, We're going to be talking through this next hour with Shane Varco. Now, Shane is Executive Director of the Dalgano Institute. And what the Dalgano Institute does is it works with the idea of minimising harm by maximising prevention. And so, therefore, uh, they're into education about these issues to do with drugs. So a special welcome back to 2020 Today to Shane Varco. Hello, Shane. Hello, Neil. Good to be back. Thank you for having me on the program. Well, Shane, I'm going to keep having you back. If you come up with the goods in the way that you've done in previous conversations, I've found the conversations so, so stimulating, but also so important. Uh, when dealing with the issues that are going on in our society because this drug issue is much bigger than probably all of us imagine. If you're talking about just how big the epidemic is with ice, drugs, alcohol, uh, how do you describe it, Shane? One of the interesting uh, phenomena around all this at the moment is that there's different narratives that that are being brought into play in, in the community, in the marketplace, which I find fascinating because you've used terms like epidemic as used you've just done which with a degree of legitimacy i might add um that that's uh, hounded and held down by by certain sectors particularly the pro-drug lobby who don't want particularly the substance of ice to be seen as an epidemic and uh, so they want that downplayed and they'll, they'll use uh, you know, data to try and shift the narrative away from that particular model at the same time uh, earlier days there was um you know because we've been following this the the track of use of particularly crystal meth amongst other drugs. Meth has been an escalating issue. And uh, the number of people using meth is growing and growing quite significantly, but but in proportion to other drug use, it's still lower. So what that narrative does is they say, well, it's not an epidemic, and people are trying to trade off that for newsworthy purposes. And I think early days, maybe two years ago, that might have been reasonably true, but that's no longer the case. Those voices are now silent. I, I think we are dealing with a serious problem and, of course, like every uh, epidemiological phenomena, uh, an epidemic, it's, a lot of factors contribute to that. So yeah, we're concerned about uh, what's going on and, and the lack of real, um, well, there's certainly a strong focus and a real intent of community to deal with this. But some of the hard, uh, hard things that need to be done aren't, aren't being done 
across the board. There's, there's certainly people in, in groups that are trying to do the, the right and good thing, but they're being stifled by you know, policy misinterpretation and misuse as well. So, yeah, we've got a problem. In short answer, mate, we've got a real problem. We've got a real problem, and there's no class distinctions here, are there? Because no, no, no. Uh, you might say, well, oh, the drug epidemic, it's happening amongst the lower socioeconomic groups within society, but there are no class distinctions here because oftentimes uh, those with more substance uh, to their own capacity uh, have more ability to buy those drugs and uh, and use them for their recreational use, as some of the terminology goes. So there is no distinction here. Every family is susceptible to the possibility of being touched by drugs. Oh, for sure, Neil. I think that's that's a complete reality. One of the differences, I suppose, with, with meth, the crystal meth particularly, and, and, and the way it's manufactured and the ease by which it can be manufactured and the locations, it's a very, uh, very easy drug, easy in some sense, once you know what you're doing, to manufacture that. And, and a lot of meth users, in fact, we know from some of the data coming out from crime statistics and government, uh, government stats is that um, uh, 50%, up to 50% of meth users are actually uh, supplying their own product themselves and they on-sell it to, to keep the habit going. Now, this is where the, the socioeconomic phenomena starts to, to do shift, where it, it's uh, often, it's not about favouring the, the lower socioeconomic demographic, but what it means is that if you've got disposable cash, then you're not worried about manufacturing, you just go and buy it. In fact, what we're seeing now with, uh, there's been a statement that's been running around for the last five or six years now, um, and which is a, a testament in some ways to our supply reduction strategies by the AFP, about cocaine, they said if cocaine was cheap and readily available, it would be the drug of choice for most Australians, quote. Um, but because it's hard to get and it's expensive and, and because imports have been shut down by supply reduction strategies, cocaine is very expensive. So it, it is the, the rich person's drug. Um, that's why a lot of sporting, uh, sporting groups use that, sporting stars, sorry, use that particular substance. But when it comes to meth... Um, they can't afford that, so they can start manufacturing their own. So then it does tend to favour, uh, not because uh, people are of a socio- low socioeconomic demographics, because they, they, it can be manufactured and easily purchased. So it does tend to buy into that, into that uh, particular demographic, which is a real concern. So, Shane, when you've got cocaine, the rich person's drug, and uh, these other uh, manufactured in the backyard lab uh, drugs, uh, the the poorer person's drug. Does it mean that the richer person's drug, cocaine, is a little safer to use than some of the other stuff? Yeah, the word I hear, I hear your question and I understand the question. <laughs> the word safe and drug, I know, word, that doesn't go uh, very well in our conversation. I try and avoid because that's that's a, that's a narrative of certain pro drug activists. Um, there is no such thing as safe drug use. Um, of course, um, is there are there drugs that are more dangerous? So clearly there are. Are there drugs that will kill you instantly? Yes, there are, particularly uh, um, strong, incredibly, incredibly strong opioids like fentanyl which and the fentanyl uh, synthetics that are being mixed uh, as well. They, they can be incredibly catastrophic uh, and instant death. Uh, but, of course, all drugs will diminish your health and ultimately all drugs will kill you if you continue to use them, just like tobacco kills you. you, know, you no one smokes a cigarette and dies of, tobacco, of a cigarette smoke, but tobacco kills hundreds of thousands of people every year. So we know all drugs do kill so let's put that, that that particular argument to bed. But yes, there are drugs that are more particularly more dangerous. Cocaine, uh, like uh, like uh, obviously cannabis and, and um, opium, uh, come from plants. Well, if they're derived specifically from those sources, not synthesised to mimic the plant, but they come from the plant, uh, and, and depends on what's done to them. Of course, there is a, a degree of knowledge about what's in the product, so you know 
uh, unless it's, of course, it's heavily cut by other substances, which is another dynamic as well to the processing of the substance, particular substance. But, yeah, so uh, that's why it, it, cocaine is... Um, and, of course, you know, pharmaceutical-grade cocaine, pharmaceutical-grade opium uh, are used uh, in, in pain management and, and, and other management uh, in, in the medical field, of course, under strict supervision, under FDA controls, of course, like all medicines are drugs and all medicines are subsequently dangerous. So, you know, of course, in that, the answer to the question is that, yeah, if you can afford the, the uh, not to use meth, which is a, a synthesised product with all sorts of chemicals in it, or, a, as you mentioned earlier, the novel psychoactive substances that continue to pop up regularly, which is, we have all sorts of chemical cocktails involved, of course, the danger level increases with those. Now, Shane, when we talk about uh, the use of, you know, you're talking about those uh, much more refined drugs that are used to treat pain. And, of course, uh, all of the recent moves towards the, uh, uh, the legalisation of, uh, of medical marijuana, uh, there's a grey area that gets created here, isn't there? Because uh, even though those might be legitimately used drugs for alleviating pain, uh, or all sorts of symptoms from things that people are trying to get free of, uh, it does create in the mind of ordinary people the idea that the use of those drugs in their unrefined uh, forms are, uh, is much more acceptable. Uh, what are your thoughts on, on the way pe- if people's thinking is affected by the way that, uh, that there is legalised uh, use of some of these drugs that we've been talking about? Oh, absolutely. There, there's clear evidence that's coming out from you know, both the states, which is obviously going down this track of um, particularly the uh, disastrous, uh, poorly thought through process of so-called legalising medical cannabis in, in America. Fortunately, we've been able to learn from them and, and what we're trying to do here is you know, significantly better, still not, not best practice as far as we're concerned, but significantly better than what's happened in the United States. But yeah, you're right. I think one of the issues around, because um, like, all the drugs that we use for pain management or other, you know, pharmaceutical purposes, that they're, those substances, including you know, cocaine to a certain extent, coca, there's certain parts of the cocaine, of course, uh, opium as well, which is a classic uh, you know, a long-term pain management tool. And of course, there is therapeutic uh, properties in cannabis. Um, and, but there are also incredibly dangerous properties in cannabis as well. And of course, the misuse of any of these products is a problem. Now, this is where it becomes a real, a real issue, particularly with men medical marijuana. We don't talk about uh, medical opium. We don't talk about medical cocaine. We don't use those terms. So that's, that's a very clever ploy, uh, particularly by the pro-drug, pro-cannabis lobby, to, to couch marijuana as medicine. So then it's, and it's seen as the harmless drug compared to cocaine, compared to opium. These things can, can cause you all sorts of psychotic issues straight away. And, and marijuana is you know, significantly better, and it's, you know, which is patently false, of course, because anyone who looks at the evidence knows that even one or two uh, uses of uh, cannabis can cr- trigger a psychotic episode in people, depending on their, their, the predilections, of course, of that individual. Again, that's the problem. How do you know each person in the planet's biochemical and uh, makeup and, and what, what determines that's safe or not safe for that person? That's another subject for another day. But the issue here is, is we've got these substances that are, are being couched as medicine. And, of course, that sends a message uh, to the community that, OK, if it's medicine, it's not too bad. But what we've got to understand up until recently... In fact, two years ago, the United States, um, now the heroin uh, epidemic is now starting to reboot in the United States, but there was four, four times the amount of overdose deaths from over-the-counter opioids in America than there was from heroin, street heroin. 
So people were dying from using medicines prescribed by pharmacies and, of course, misusing that medicine. Therefore, you got that term recreational use of a medicine for the purposes of getting high. And they use it either by, you know, um, crushing it, mixing it, injecting it, all sorts of ways of, of, of um, engaging with the substance, the vehicles of, of, of engagement. But this is, what's, this is what's concerning, is that now we've got, you know, medicines now being used, misused, for recreational purposes and causing incredible harms. So, okay, we've got these medicines which are technically legal, but they are now killing us. So now we want to make illicit drugs now legal and all decriminalised and add another value of permission to that particular brand of of, um, substance and therefore legitimising it in people's eyes. They say, well, okay, if it's decriminalised, it's okay. If it's medicine, it's okay. So these messages, which are all very much part of the pro-drug strategy, pro-drug lobby, sorry, strategy, to infuse into the community that this is a normalised thing, it's relatively safe. Sure, there's dangers, but, you know, you can manage them. And if it goes pear-shaped, then the healthcare system will look after you. It's all fine. Just, just, Just be careful. So that message is now getting through more and more. And, of course, there are no consequences for actions, whether legally or socially or teleologically. I mean, because we have a, a, bad, a bad experience, and then the, medicine, uh, the medical industry will fix it up for us and we can go back and do it again. So, again, we've got this ongoing uh, permission culture, and it's permission. I want to jump right in here and say this. It's permission, Neil, not prohibition. Permission that is putting generations and families at risk in this country. And the sooner we get that message across, the better off we'll be. Well, I think you touch here on one of the answers to the challenge of the drug epidemic, uh, because you've got to change this idea of permission, which, as you say, has become a cultural phenomenon. Uh, It's got to be changed back to the idea of a prohibition, because uh, otherwise uh, it will just continue to get out of control. But let me ask you, Shane, when you make reference to the pro-drug lobby, uh, we're talking about a faceless, behind-the-scenes push towards uh, money-making enterprises when it comes to drugs, whether they be legalised or illegal drugs. Uh, describe for us how you think the pro-drug lobby looks, because there are no real names and faces here, are there? Well, there are a number of names and faces, but we don't want to talk about them in the public space to get enough traction as it is. Uh, unfortunately, uh, you've got... Some genuine, as I mentioned previously, there is in the national drug strategy. We have three key pillars, which is supply reduction, which is a difficult one. But again, because Australia is an island, we do have the capacity to to you know, slow down imports. That's why cocaine is hard to get out here and therefore expensive and therefore underutilised, which is a great thing. So supply reduction does work. Of course, when we had a supply reduction uh, around the um, opium epidemic back in the late 90s in Victoria, particularly. And between supply reduction efforts, increased policing, and a, a drought in the Golden Triangle, sorry, the Emerald Triangle, there was a, um, uh, there was a, a supply reduction. It was huge. And, of course, opium deaths plummeted. So we didn't have to have an injecting room, or as was predicted by uh, then uh, Professor Pennington. He said, we're going to have people dead on the streets if we don't do an injecting room. Of course, they hit supply reduction. And all of a sudden, the, the deaths per annum dropped from 1,100 down to about 150. It's still too many, but... We're talking about supply reduction does work when it's done properly and it's done across the board. Um, of course, in the, the, the other, the, the bottom of the cliff, if you like, ambulance driving part of the national drugs strategy is the uh, harm reduction, which is saying, okay, well, people, we, we want to, you know, people are going to take drugs. We want to help them not die from drugs. We want to help them get off drugs. Now, and in the middle there is the, the important pillar, which has been completely neglected, which is demand reduction. 
and we've that, and that's the one that has to be focused on, which we won't talk about right now. But it has to, has to be focused on as a solution-based uh, factor in all of this. But the harm reductionists, and there are people in that space, and, and we would certainly subscribe to much of the harm reduction desire to keep people, um, you know, we don't want people to die of drug use. No one wants that. But we want to help those people, same people, get off drugs, out of exit drug use, and um, be given the opportunities and resources to do just that. Not and facilitated to not just when you're ready, but what's happened with harm reduction only is it's been infiltrated by a lot of pro-drug activists. Now they will use harm reduction mantras like "we want to save lives," and you know when you put that out in the marketplace, "we want to save lives," of course everyone goes, "Yeah, we agree." Uh, but what we, what they're saying is we want to save lives and we want to keep you using. We want to help you use more safely. We want to help you have equipment to use. We want so again, it's it's, it's trying to normalise drug use and having even user groups now in play, which are drug current drug users who use uh, what they call um, you know uh, what they call functional drug users. They send, they go to work, they pay their taxes, and they and they but they're using drugs on a regular basis. Um, and no such thing as a functional drug user, but that's that that's the particular um, language they use to describe them. But these groups are now getting hold of that harm reduction, that important harm reduction uh, uh, pillar, and they are reinterpreting it. So recovery is not in that space. Getting off drugs is not there. Exiting drug use isn't there. It's about continued safer, inverted commas, parenthetically, um, uh, it's, it's safer, ongoing, sustainable, illicit drug use. Now, it's those people, and there are some key players in that, and and others who unwittingly will, will aid and abet that to see drug use more, more, more normalised. And, of course, they're the ones who are saying we should decriminalise. They're the ones who are saying, you know, we're, you know, we're, um, we've got to you know, stop putting our young people at harm. But with every permission statement, in fact, Australia 21, which is a group that's come out who does a lot of different social uh, policies, and they've come out again five years from their last attempt to talk about, you know, releasing drugs or, you know, decriminalising drugs or... They're, again, they're, they're one of the key players that are, again, being harnessed by the pro-drug lobby to increase this mantra of normalisation of drug use. And that permission is driving the escalation in use. Uh, and again, what you need to do is juxtapose that particular model with the quit campaign for the tobacco industry, whereas there's no, in the marketplace, there are no mantras around uh, safe use and or ongoing use and or uh, permitted use of tobacco. Every mantra around the tobacco is quit, stop, cessation. Yes, there's a journey, there's a process, but the support is to one end. It's the support and the policy framework and the energies and the resources are to one end, and that is cessation of tobacco use. And when all parties in the community, education, government policy, welfare, policing, business, schools, uh, welfare groups, all on the same page, then the message gets through, this is not acceptable and we're going to work very hard with everybody to reduce drug use, uh, the, the use of tobacco and we and we'll get people off tobacco. And that's worked. Why can't we apply that same model to illicit drugs? Visions 2020 with Neil Johnson. A biblical perspective on life, culture and current events. We're talking about what's happening to our nation in the grip of a drug epidemic. Shane Varco is our guest, Executive Director of the Dalgano Institute, based in Victoria. We are taking calls on 1-800-316-316. Uh, let's take a call, Shane, uh, from Stephen in Innisfail in Queensland. Hello, Stephen. Thanks for waiting patiently. What are your thoughts? Hey, good morning, John. Good morning, Shane. Thanks for your time. Um, Shane, I can't imagine the things you've seen at your end of the stick down there. Um, it's the pointy end of the stick. I can't imagine. 
I've seen just what's happening in the generation that my daughters and my children are in with the ice and the way people behave on that. It's scary. So, you know, when I grew up, it was cannabis. And um, then I had a back injury and I was held away from opiates for a long time. So I resorted to that. And then when I was, had, finally had my operation, the doctor told me he was very happy for me to use it. It was a very good painkiller, but he couldn't prescribe it. That was in Victoria a few years ago. So it's coming out now. But, you know, you've got people who you say that it leads to harder drugs. And, um, but you've got people who are on, who need pain management. And so they have to, you know, I was prescribed an opiate before I was prescribed cannabis, of course. And, you know, <laughs> it, it dilutes the need for opiates. And in, in fact, it probably would get rid of opiates. So you've got people leaning toward getting opiates because they can't get their hands on the stuff that's not so harmless. Sure. You know, and cocaine has been used around the world, chewed up for thousands of years because someone refined it and made it a dangerous thing. Of course. You know, nobody can access that when it's so good for your whole body. Good thoughts, Stephen. Let's get a response from yeah. Shane. Look, as I said before, Stephen, thank you for the call. Yeah, these these substances have got therapeutic properties. And if you go back a bit of a history lesson for you, um, one of the, the, the single biggest drug epidemic that ever experienced in in the world was experienced, sorry, in the world, in the United States, I'll, I'll retract that, in the United States, happened um, between this end of the Civil War and the, the turn of the, the, uh, the 20th century. And the reason for that was is that um, cocaine was discovered as a, a pain management tool and opium was discovered as a pain management tool. So everybody from the, the local uh, publican to the local dentist to the local doctor got these substances and when people took them, they felt better. They, they actually felt better. So they started putting it in elixirs and whatnot. This was totally unresearched, totally unregulated. And of course, as a result of that, there was in excess of over 400,000, and this is, remember, this is going back nearly 200 years ago, 400,000 registered addicts, cocaine and opium addicts in the United States. And that's one of the reasons why regulation was brought in, because I started to realise that just because something makes you feel better, is it actually repairing you? Now, of course, pain management is a very important thing. And of course, what you've said, Stephen, about uh, the, the pain management potential of opium, of um, cannabis, is real. And we're wanting to get that out, that therapeutic property out. But it's, the, the difficulty with the current situation is that people are trying to negate proper TGA approval. In other words, because each substance, and particularly cannabis, has over 400 compounds in it, and there are a lot of nasty compounds in cannabis, and, and CBD, CBN, and THC all have, which are compounds in cannabis, have therapeutic properties. And they can be used for pain management for a season. But the difficulty with cannabis is that, and particularly with THC, Delta-9 uh, tetrahydrocannabinol, is, is that's a psychotropic toxin, uh, a particular substance in cannabis that actually gives you that high and that messes with uh, the limbic system with you know uh, the prefrontal cortex it does all sorts of things to the body so whilst someone might be managing pain in their body very important and it's and if it's not only a temporary issue then that's very important to think of this is that they take that for the pain but also they could be doing damage in their psychosis in other areas in in, um, in their bodies and their brains particularly in their neuro system so that's why it has to be properly done gw farmer in, in england have been working on this for about 15 16 years trying to come up with formulations of um of cannabis that are useful and most people don't know this neil and and excuse me steve is that there has actually been available to the consumer in australia as well on 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 our on our pharmaceutical register, two cannabis preparations for tw nearly 20 years. 
Sativex is one of them, and I think the other one is Draminol. Don't don't quote me on that. But these are for pain management and or for nausea uh, management, particularly in um, cancer patients who are dying of cancer. So, again, you're giving uh, to a terminally ill person, um, their psychosis or their long-term mental health isn't going to be a real issue. If they're dealing with pain, that's, they're going to be unfortunately passing away in the next, you know, six to twelve months. Psychosis is an issue, but if you're dealing with a child who's got epilepsy, and you're giving them a substance that hasn't been properly tested and vetted, and uh, stops their seizures, only sorry, only manages their seizures, doesn't fix their seizures, but in twelve, uh, in sorry, five six years time, all of a sudden that, that child still has the seizures being managed, but now has psychosis as well because of the misuse of an untested product then we've got a real problem on our hands. So we've got a double health whammy going on. So again, use of medicines for managing pain is one thing, very important. Two, what are the long-term effects? And is this going to create problems? And three, is this actually fixing the problem or is this just a vehicle to help manage the problems while we actually deal with the cause of the condition? And these are important factors that need to be considered. And that's what TGA is supposed to do. Now, what the states have done in, in their rush to be compassionate for the for the for the people that are suffering is that they've tried to bypass TGA. Fortunately, in Victoria and Delgano is involved in many submissions into the parliament to try and uh, work the bill around so it's more uh, it's it's far more in line with best practice medical activity. Was there was over 400 amendments made to the the medical marijuana bill to ensure. In fact, they should have just done it through TGA and be done with it to ensure that it's not misused. It's not done by hackers. It's not set up there for what's happening in America, everyone can grow their own and dispense it to their friends. But it's actually done properly and it's monitored and it's tested and it's put through trials and then it's prescribed only by doctors who understand it and it's prescribed specifically for a season, not long going. So all those mechanisms are in place. So again, the argument is not whether there are therapeutic properties in these substances, substances or not. It's how they're being managed and prescribed. And as I said before, we're seeing now even over-the-counter medicines or prescription medicines are now being abused and misused by people so they're getting hold of stuff that's even properly tested but even prescribed saying you can only use this one tablet a day two tablets a day for the next five days and you must stop but they're taking those and jacking up 10 tablets in one go to get high so we've got another issue besides whether or not these substances are dangerous is why are people jumping into this space and continuing to put themselves and their families at risk uh, shane let's continue to take some calls we've got some sure. callers who've been waiting patiently let's hear from beck in broken hill in new south wales hello beck welcome along Hey, yes, good morning. Good morning, Neil. Good morning, Shane. Good, good morning. to hear from you, Beck. What are your thoughts? Um, my, my thoughts is I've actually just learnt that a friend of mine um, has actually um, is actually on drugs, but they're not ones that apparently at this stage can be detected in the blood, and I'm actually a bit concerned. Um, I have been told what what he's on, but I can't remember offhand what it is. But um, I'm actually concerned about, um, you know, sort of like weeds that you just grow in the garden and that grow in the garden that can be dried and smoked. Okay. Your thoughts, Shane? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Beck. Uh, Look, it's a difficult one to answer. It's always disturbing to hear when people uh, take up a substance, regardless of where it comes from, and just kind of try, experiment different substances. Look, there's a number of plants out there. Australia has a couple of quite toxic plants, which one of the most toxic poisons in the world come from, which is sodium monofluorosetate, and um, no one eats that. In fact, the, the native animals don't eat it, and so it's very dangerous. So again, drawing a plant and smoking it is a concern. Now, when it comes to detection, uh, every every drug pretty much can be detected in the system, depending on what they're looking for. So 
um, if, if it's a known substance and it's and it's uh, a blood test is done, then they'll pick up what that known substance is. But if it's not known, they'll just pick up a substance that they're not aware of that's in the blood that's uh, outside the normal um, obviously regimen of the of the body. So that's kind of when it's just undetectable. That's kind of you know from a from a drug scanning perspective, it might be undetectable because it's not a known drug. If that's what this gentleman is taking, certainly my concern is that that intervention is done. And it's always hard, particularly with friends and family, to to do that because you, you you there's a fear of risking, oh, you know, sort of alienation. They don't want to talk to you, and then, and if anyone's a, dependent on a drug or addicted, then their first their first allegiance is to that substance. They will do anything to protect that addiction, uh, to that that new master in their lives. So it can be difficult, but an intervention is necessary. Back in, uh, you say, look, you know, what are you doing? Come on, let's. Let, this is this is a symptom of a bigger problem. Uh, this is a, a mask. This is a you know a, a mechanism of trying to deal with something. Let's let's talk about the real issue. What's going on for you, man? Let's have a conversation. If you need professional help, let's get that. Let's go together and get some professional help, whether it be the local GP, very good starting point, local GP, or a, or a um, mental health specialist. They can always help. Um, so that's that's something I I strongly recommend you try and do, Meg. Beck from Broken Hill, thank you so much for your input today. I hope that was a helpful response uh, from Shane Varco. We are taking calls, 1-800-316-316. Let's hear from John in Tasmania. Hello, John. Welcome along. Hello, uh, Neil. John, what are uh, your thoughts? Just, Hi, John. Uh, three lines uh, that Shane might like to comment on. One is that uh, crystal methamphetamine was part, in some sense, of the Nazi ideology that we're on a journey from human to superhuman. And being able to go and go and go without sleep was handy in the military. Um, Another person who had that kind of thinking of uh, substance use as enhancement of human performance was Aldous Huxley. I think it was in his book, Doors of Perception. Yep. Second point is the spiritual nature of drug addiction, which is not commonly recognised now. Timothy Leary's book, for example, advocating the use of psychedelic drugs as sacraments of a new uh, self-man-made uh, religions. Sure. The third point is that... Uh, the idea of drug wars is not so far-fetched as we might think. In the 19th century China, China went to war over Western uh, merchants importing of opium into China. Mm-hmm. Correct. Okay. A response from Shane. Yeah, look, Joe, look, great comments, and all of them are accurate too. Uh, thanks for that, John. Yeah, look, uh, just quickly, yeah, crystal meth's been around uh, quite a long time. I think it was the first, you know, it's one of its first derivations was concocted in the 19th century. Certainly, uh, we know that Adolf Hitler, from the records and history, that Adolf Hitler was a meth user. And, and there's a classic, just a wonderful picture there of why this should never be in the marketplace. You've, you've, got, um, you've got sociopathic, uh, uh, barbaric... Uh, military regime with an ideology of utter disdain and hatred for anyone so-called lesser than them, and you throw meth on top of that, which dehumanises you even further and drives you into a... So you take that, that ideological driver of disdain and hatred and then you fuel it with a non-stop sleep regime. And, and of course, the other thing that Hitler threw at his SS troops was uh, Goethe. So he fed them crystal meth and Goethe, 
uh, the, the sort of philosophy and said and mind comforts that have at it. So there's uh, there's a walking advertisement why meth is such a shocking drug. Secondly, the the issue around um, uh, I forgot your second one. Um, uh, uh, your uh, second the point. Religious components. Uh, psychedelic sacraments. Oh, yeah, Leary, Leary, of course, is, is end up being a stand-up comedian after all these, you know, waxing lyrical about the, the, the spiritual phenomena, of particularly LSD, which was the, the, the substance of choice for him. Was, and again, it's a, a psychedelic drug, if you like. Uh, yeah, so that's its purpose is for, for mind-altering. And, of course, what that does, and we know with LSD what that does and, and other such um, hallucinogens do, and they manufacture, they say they manufacture an illusion. They don't help you engage with a reality. When it comes to the spirituality side of things, I don't like to comment too much in that space because that's more for people who are in that space. But I know there's been a book recently put out by a Queensland physician um, called The Theology of, of, uh, um, the Theology of Addiction called Let My People Go, I think it is. The Theology of Addiction. And it's, 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 it's an academic look at and both from a, uh, a high-level professorship and uh, clinician view of, of addiction from that perspective. So it's a, a strong theological, which is very, very sound. Uh, and so, yeah, <clears throat> there is a, that component as well. I think once, and if that's excised, it seems to be that, particularly with 12-step programs, when people engage that particular phenomena, that particular arena, then there's, there's a lot more breakthrough than people who just go through me- methodological, pragmatic steps. So positive psychology, uh, as I understand it, buys heavily into that, and what we what would you are calling spiritual space, it buys heavily into that. And acknowledging that that spirituality in its various forms can be an incredible, uh, useful vehicle for helping people escape addictions, because you start dealing with things beyond the, the, the mind and the body. You start dealing with bits and pieces. Of course, Aldous Huxley. Um, again, we won't even be to go into that space too. It's all about perceptions and creating a an illusionary reality, which is you know subscribed to by a number of different philosophical spaces already. And of course, when you have an illusion, you don't have a real uh, a, a real handle on reality. So therefore, you can't come up with real solutions for the problem. All you do is keep feeding illusions into illusions, and that is always a spiral down into destruction. So yeah, appreciate the comments, but they're all good and valid ones. Thank you so much to John from Tasmania. 1-800-316-316. Our talkback line is open. Let's take a call from Chris in Victoria. Hello, Chris. Uh, good day, Neil. Yeah, good day, Shane. Yeah, day, I just want to make a comment. Maybe all these things are just, you know, related to, you know, like um, God not willing to share his glory with another. So I think that's what we should be praying over these people, that God will not share his glory with another, um, in, in the sense that... Um, uh, what am I trying to say? Um, you know, the glory of God is the cross, and the, the glory of the cross is the salvation of our souls, and the devil is trying to rob these people of these things. Because when they're in an altered state, they open themselves up to demonic influence, influences. So what we should be praying is that God will not share his glory with another, so that maybe the Holy Spirit will be able to influence them rather than demonic influences. Uh, Chris, what a great insight. Thank you so much for your call. Uh, we're racing through uh, some calls today. Let's take a call from John in central Queensland. Hello, John. Hi, Neil. How are you? Very well, John. What are your thoughts? So uh, I work in emergency medicine and dental practice, and uh, uh, as you guys are talking, it's a massive epidemic uh, that's going around. Uh, Brad Holston is actually amazing with that, and uh, he says the nucleus accumbens is, is so in, uh, stimulated by these drugs that it provides that pleasure 
And uh, it's interesting what it says. It says the Holy Spirit also works on that. So if the Bible says protect your mind, I'm sure the Holy Spirit wants to work in all of us. And that's, he doesn't compete. So if you choose drugs or any other substance or technology, and you get that high or that dopamine release, it's amazing what you can see and people and how down spiral they, they actually do go. So it's, uh, thank you for your program and thank you that you're highlighting all these things that we're seeing in our society today. And John, uh, great insights, uh, but let me ask you, because did you say you're actually working uh, in in uh, helping people uh, with, uh, with who have uh, battled addiction? What's, what's your thoughts on the extent of this sort of epidemic that we're talking about in central Queensland? Uh, it's massive. We, we see families uh, just ruined. We see elderly people uh, just being taken advantage of. Um, father figures just disappear out of families. And uh, we recently had uh, just the whole family involved in uh, motor vehicle accidents because of use of uh, drugs and poor children in the vehicle. So um, it's a massive uh, impact that we see um, physically, mentally, financially, and of course, spiritually, and, and, and people's lives, and um, and the battle is out, uh, is on. It's, it's it's a massive battle that we're fighting against. Um, we see people breaking down doors, break, break, uh, assaulting um, medical staff. Uh, they become supernatural, um, basically strength that they have, and and it takes five, six, seven guys just to hold one down. Um, uh, we see this, and it takes so much uh, more. Uh, resources to to just uh, be able to combat this and and be able to provide some care for these people. And my heart goes out to each one that's addicted to that. And my prayer is that they they would give Jesus a chance in their lives to to turn away and 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 experience the love and peace that Jesus gives. Uh, because uh, I I can't see other way at this stage. It's it's a massive epidemic. Uh, John, thank you so much for sharing your heart and uh, giving us your insight about what's happening in your community. And it won't be uh, as a isolated community be happening right across our nation. Yep. Uh, Shane, your your response on uh, when you oh, hear look, John reflecting on those things? What he's just said is encapsulated. I think what's what's happening uh, replicated across the country. And again, that's what the pro drug lobby want to keep out of the media, out of the press. Because when you we, we talk about this in seminars that we deliver both to uh, to adult parent groups and school groups, we talk about one of our seminars called Ripped Off, and it's about focusing specifically on social justice and social responsibility issues. And and we ask the students during the uh, as a start right through the entire seminar from the start to the finish, the question comes up every now and then: Is any of this just? Is any of this responsible? After they've seen you know half a dozen slides, and at the start we ask them for a, a verbal response, and at the start of the seminars you hear nothing. It's just a mumble. During the, during the seminar, you hear people sort of mumbling a bit louder. By the end of the seminar, if they've had 90 minutes of looking at the data, you ask the question, is any of this just? Is any of this responsible? And the entire class goes, no, it's not. So, you know, even young people who I think they're bulletproof and you know, on the edge of it, they're going to try it and they're going to have a go at it. Once they see that just some of the outcomes of this, including what John's just shared, you've got seven people in medicine, emergency medicine holding down one patient trying to straightjacket them or chemically handcuff them, so actually sedate them, put them in a room for at least three or four hours before they can properly treat them and find out what's going on. 
during that entire time, the amount of money being spent, the staff usage, the human resources involved, when a person comes in with a heart attack or a car, genuine car accident from no fault of their own, they can't be treated or their, their treatment is delayed because we're dealing with a self-induced law-breaking activity. And we're not talking often about the tyranny of addiction, which can drive people to do all sorts of horrible things. We're talking about first, second time and third time users who have bad experiences or because they want to experiment with something for the sake of getting high. And again, we're giving permission to that culture that drives that culture. And the concern is we don't want to see, as with John, we don't want to see anybody in that state. But when people are in that state, the harms they do to others is horrendous. Now, you take that same harm and put it into the parent space, which we did mention earlier, you've got this whole dynamic of a parent who's got children, a little one who's doing meth or other drugs, the neglect ratios, the stats on this are staggering. And you saw the ICE Corridor article that came out of Queensland recently through the Southeast Corridor there. The number of parents, you know, that's 60% of kids in, in, those, in those homes are now in welfare. The number of parent, grandparents lobbying uh, legal agencies to get legal custody of their grandchildren to keep them away from their drug-using parents is escalating and uh, at rates they have not seen before. So the, 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 the response, social responsibility, irresponsibility, the social injustice that's being per- perpetrated by people because they want to get stoned, they want to get high. We're not talking about long-term drug users. We're talking about often people just want to try this out and they get caught very quickly. We know with meth, particularly with meth on the young brain, between four and five users only, four and five uses of the substance can alter brain function. We know that from the evidence coming out. That's disturbing behaviour. And so you've got people permanently being damaged and their capacity to relate and or connect with others is diminished. Their ability to care for those they need to care for is removed. And all of a sudden the state becomes responsible. And of course we know what happens when kids go into welfare, they're not being given good parental input. And the escalating dysfunction because of this, this one drug is just quite staggering. And anybody who promotes the the enabling, equipping, endorsing or, or, um, of, of any drug use who says it should be decriminalised or legalised or, or made normalised is actually a horrendously socially irresponsible and socially in unjust person. And that's a concern that we have. We're seeing those voices get more airtime than, than those that care for the community like John. Uh, Shane Varco is our guest. I want to thank you so much to John from Central Queensland for your insight. Uh, we are going to tie some loose ends together in just a few moments. And just to clarify uh, the, the issue that you mentioned that came out of Queensland recently, one-third of Queensland children in protection have parent using meth. One-third of children who came into the care of the Queensland Department of Child Safety in 2016 had parents who use or have used methamphetamines most commonly ice. That's what a new report found. About 60% of those 749 children suffered neglect. About a third was subjected to emotional harm. 11% experienced physical harm. 1% were sexually abused. And of the children with a parent uh, who had used ice, uh, there was uh, high percentage neglect, high percentage experienced emotional harm, physical harm, sexual abuse, uh, just dreadful. And uh, those are the sorts of effects that flow on from uh, this, uh, this permission, as you call it, Shane. We'll continue our conversation in just a few moments. Helping you make sense of life, culture and current events from a biblical perspective. 
2020 on Vision. Shane Varko is our guest. Uh, what's happening to a nation in the grip of a drugs epidemic? That's our topic of conversation. Uh, we won't take any more calls today, but let's uh, try and draw some loose ends together uh, here, Shane. If we're drawing loose ends together and saying, what are we going to take away from today's conversation? Uh, issues that you raise around permission and the idea of demand reduction being better than any other uh, level of reduction when it comes to the drugs issue. Uh, how do you like to uh, to sort of sum things up of the sorts of things we've been talking about this hour? Oh, Neil, one of the difficult things with, uh, with demand reduction is the key issue. That's point, point blank. That is the key issue, not the only issue. The three pillars are important and the national drug strategy, but we need to invest, as we've done so with the quit campaign with tobacco, in demand reduction is why the question is why are people in the lucky country the most one of the most prosperous and arguably one of the most prosperous nations in the world with so much productivity going for them welfare mechanisms in play uh, compared to so much of the third world and developing world we're seeing people choose not from the tyranny of addiction not from um, you know poverty and 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 pain and grief and so about seven to eight percent of people that take drugs do for those reasons and I understand that fully, but the rest of the demographic between sixty and seventy five percent of people take up drugs out of curiosity and or because a friend offered it to them and they wanted to have it buzz and try, so we've got a hedonistic culture that continues to to dabble um, illegally uh, and at the expense of others because there's this sense of oh I don't really give a rip what anyone else thinks I'm going to do it. So we're going to ask the question, what's driving that particular demand? You know, and there's a lot of answers to that, and we talk about that in our Humpty Dumpty Dilemma seminar particularly. I was speaking at a group of, um, uh, um, a large group of men recently uh, in a community forum on this, and uh, it was just about, you know, as men, what they could do as men, fathers, as brothers, as husbands in this space. And it was fascinating to, to, to watch their, their eyes light up around the Humpty Dumpty Dilemma and what that all looks like, you know. And so we've got this, this culture that is, is so, with so much potential and so much capacity and, and so much resources, it's so fragile and it's exercising uh, a misuse, a misunderstanding of their fragility, and they're trying to self-medicate or just try and fill in the blanks or try to deal with boredom or whatever it may be. So we need to have a demand reduction strategies in place to help them deal with that. And that goes way beyond simple pragmatic steps. They yep. have to look at some of the world view issues. So parenting issues are important, and, and we can learn from all sorts of different sectors. We, on our website, we've got some great parenting insights from some of our first peoples uh, on our Isabella's List uh, page. Shane, it's, uh, it's, we are running out of time, yep, uh, sure. but I want people to uh, to know your website address because I know that there are some tremendous resources Sure. And the sorts of arguments that you've been putting forward over this past hour, people can get a hold of uh, some deeper insights into some of these things. So I want to point people to dalganoinstitute.org.au. That's dalgano, D-A-L-G-A-R-N-O, institute.org.au. And uh, lots of great resources there. And uh, people can also uh, subscribe to some uh, regular email yes, mailings. Uh, what's that yeah, one that you go. do? It's, uh, it's really fabulous. On the, on the website, you can subscribe to our newsletter, our fence builder newsletter. We're not ambulance drivers. We're fence builders. Um, and also on our www.nobrainer.org.au, which is our, aimed at our young people and teachers. Same, you can subscribe there for a, a monthly newsletter, which is you know, done uh, key data that's up and running. Uh, and also, just if you type, log in, type in Isabella's List to any 
any web browser, you'll come up with our website straight away. It talks about um, some of the things that parents can do, uh, that uh, siblings can do, families can do at helping the health of the, the well-being of their kids and families moving forward. We have parent nights. We have sporting club um, uh, seminars. We have secondary school seminars. We have community forum seminars. So we run a lot of educative processes as well as advocate uh, government as well. And if you want to join us and help advocate for a better, safer, healthier community, we'd love to have them on board. Shane Varco at dalganoinstitute.org.au. Shane, thanks so much for taking some time to share these insights with us today here on 2020. Always a pleasure, Neil, and thank you for the opportunity to do so. Before you go, thanks for listening. There's lots more great audio on demand, or you can listen to us live at visionradio.org.au. And remember, Vision is listener-supported. Your donation, large or small, will help us continue connecting faith to life for hundreds of thousands of people across Australia and around the world. Learn more or donate today at visionradio.org.au.